We're in James, so if you have got a Bible with you, turn to James. It's after the book of Hebrews, so it's towards the end of the Bible. And we're beginning a series on James. It's going to take us, uh, I think, close to August. So it'll be fun as we kind of work through this book. It's probably one of the most popular books of the Bible. If you were to take away the Gospels, uh, there's a good chance that James would rank number one, I think, in people's hearts and in their affections. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is simply this. It is... Um, it is a very practical, real-life book. It's considered a part of the wisdom literature in Scripture. And the wisdom literature, books like Job and Psalms and Proverbs uh, and Ecclesiastes and then the book of James, and they're books that deal with the subject of life. And, and so if you're the kind of person that, that loves to philosophize and loves to think about the meaning of life and the, the purpose of life and and how things ought to be or should be or what we as people um, should be like, James is going to be a book that you're going to be you know, crazy about. And you probably already are if you're like that. And so James is going to be kind of a fun thing. It's, it's one of the what's called the Catholic epistles. And it's basically, it doesn't mean the Catholic church. The word Catholic means universal. And so when you say Catholic church, uh, that title was, was taken early on in the church to mean the universal church. It's where that name comes from. But the Catholic epistles are letters that aren't written to a specific uh, little congregation or city or town. And so most of Paul's letters are written to a specific church. Uh, the Catholic letters, like James, are written to just a wide general audience, a universal audience. And we see that right in the beginning. So if we start in verse 1, you'll pick that up. And it says this, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Okay, so he's writing his letter, he's authoring his letter to um, all of those that would basically be the God-fearers, the, the Jewish Christians that are, that are all throughout the world scattered, and hopefully this letter is going to find them. So he's writing to the whole nation of Israel scattered throughout the world. Now the word scattered there in Greek uh, diaspora is a technical term because it's the, it's the Greek concept for when the, the nation of Israel, which kind of broke up the 11 tribes in the north and then Judah in the south, uh, were eventually carted off kind of in, in punishment for not keeping the covenants with, with God. And so they were basically God sent the Babylonians and then the Persians and, and others down into the land and they knocked down cities, and they kind of took people captive, and they led them back up to their cities and to different places and would try to meld them into their culture. And one of the, the fascinating things is, is that happened with almost every ancient society, with, with most ancient societies, and it actually would take. With the Jewish culture, they wouldn't meld into their host um, nation. They would remain distinct, and they would kind of keep their identity. And so... Uh, the diaspora is a technical term for what happened when God's judgment came and people that were all supposed to be in one land, the promised land, were then scattered okay, into different lands. And it happened more when the Greeks came through and then the Romans even coming through. And so you've got Jews living all over the Mediterranean and basically all over the world, yet they're retaining their identity and they're still trying to worship Yahweh God, the, 
the God of the Old Testament, our God. Uh, who, and so this is who he's writing to, and it's a Catholic letter. And it's a very pastoral letter, letter as well. It's, if you're going to write as a, as a leader with something to say, and you're going to write to all the 12 tribes, you're going to write to people that are scattered all throughout different cities and, and different parts of the world, you're trying to basically coach them on life or, or speak truth into their life in the, in the most basic and general and meaningful way possible. And so it comes right from the heart of a pastor here, who's trying to speak to these people that he doesn't even have a relationship with. And so that's how the letter gets started, who it's from and and where it's to. And then it jumps right into this, probably one of the more famous paragraphs in Scripture. And it says this, Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think you will receive anything from the Lord. He's a a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. And so let's just jump back up to the top there. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And that's such a a crazy line right there. And and I've, I've, almost every Christian I've run across has come, you know, that's been a Christian for a while knows this verse and knows it well. When I was a camp counselor, uh, I've told the story a bunch of times before. I, I was 22, and I was in the mountains above L.A., and every other camp counselor was from Azusa Pacific, which is a Christian college, or Biola, or Master's College. These are all Christian um, kids from Christian colleges where they take Bible. And here I had never even read the book of James. And so we were doing this camp where the kids leave at 5 o'clock in the evening. It's kind of a day camp. And then we've got the the rest of the evening free as staff. And so I was getting pretty fired up about God. And so one night I grabbed everyone. I said, let's go down to the, the lake and we'll just read the Bible. And so they all kind of looked at me like they didn't know what that meant. You know, it's like, what do you mean? You know, and so they kind of, okay, well, we'll go along. It's beautiful. Um, get off camp, that kind of a thing. So we all go down. We sit at this picnic table. I mean, I didn't know how you were supposed to read the Bible with other Christians or what the rules were and, and whatnot. Uh, and so we sit at this picnic table, and and I open up, and I started reading from James, and I'd never read the book of James. And I started reading, and I would like read like a, a sentence or two, a verse or two, and I was going crazy, like, this stuff's amazing. And, and, then, and then if you know me, I'm just making up stuff to talk about, and I'm, I'm getting excited. And, and then I'd read another couple verses, and I'd be like, oh, that's, that's crazy, and uh, this is amazing. And and these Christian kids are just they're just looking at me. Just like you're just you're weird. You are really who are you and what are you doing? And we all we all have our moments when we play the village idiot. Um But but I remember the first time I read this paragraph. It was sitting by Big Bear Lake and and it had all these people looking at me like I oh, was strange. But I think when whenever you 
read it or when we hear it for the first time, it just leaps right out at us, this phrase, consider it pure, all joy, pure joy, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, it jumps out for two reasons. The first is this. We really want joy. Uh, to enjoy life means literally to take, take in joy, okay? I'm, I'm going to take in joy. I'm going to have this meaningful life. And so joy is a big deal. And so I think whenever we see the word happiness or the word joy, we immediately kind of come alive. If you want to sell a book, you just put the word happiness in the title, and it's going to sell. And so the first reason that this jumps out at us, uh, the most dominant reason, I think, is just because that's a loaded word. The second reason is because it's a paradox, says, consider it pure joy, and then says, when you face trials. So have joyful trials. And it's kind of like a weird oxymoron, you know, like jumbo shrimp or Microsoft Works or um, military intelligence, you know, those kinds of things. Um, tax return. Uh, the... It's a little bit of this, this paradox, oxymoron. These two words don't go together. They seem to cancel each other out. And, and I think there's, that's where we need to camp. When I was first thinking, man, we're going to get to teach James. This is so cool. I can, I can go talk about happiness because that will be so much fun to talk about happiness. And, and as I studied this week, I thought, no, it's not the joy part that's really fascinating. It's the paradox that's fascinating. Okay, And so the, the, the type of trial that we're talking about here, the reason it's paradoxical is because if you have a health problem, that's not good. God designed us so that we would be healthy, right? And so if, if the natural order of things is to be healthy and then all of a sudden there's a health problem, it's a paradox. How can I have joy in that? It's not the way it's supposed to be. Or money. God designed me and called me to work hard and to provide for my family. To, to use the, the strength he's given me to be a mature and responsible adult, take care of my family. So if I run into money problems, how can I take joy in that? It's not the way it's supposed to be. Or relational things, you know, there's... Uh, we're always going round and round with that stuff, aren't we? Uh, slander or gossip or just enemies or people we hide from or just feeling like we can't just be in a loving community. And yet that's the way God wanted it to be. It was always supposed to be a loving community, a family. And so how can we take joy when there is no unity, when there's disunity, when there's strife, and when there's relational conflict? It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. But here's why. And so in verse 4, it says this. Uh, we'll start in verse 3, actually. You take joy in your trials because, because what? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And the real idea here is this, that... When things are not the way they're supposed to be, it tests our faith. It tests our faith. It says it right there. The testing of your faith. Trials test faith. God called us to be healthy, and when 
all of a sudden I'm dealing with unhealth, I struggle to trust that he really is going to work things out for good in my life or that there really is going to be a reward that will somehow justify the pain I'm going through in this life um, with what's going to come in the next life or that there's somebody that's, that's even there because I might get so wrapped up in it that I feel like I'm completely alone. There really is no God. And so it tests faith. Now, here's the interesting thing about faith. The Enlightenment did it to us. The Enlightenment was when uh, logical arguments for the existence of God really just burst on the scene. So everybody's analyzed, can we prove whether God exists or can we prove whether he doesn't exist? And so what we did is we took the word faith and we made it about this belief that there is a God which is like a light switch. It's either there or it's not. Belief that God either exists or doesn't, and it's a light switch. And that's not the kind of faith we're really talking about here. The kind of faith we're talking about here is is more of a trust. Do I believe God enough that I can continue to follow him despite my medical problem or my financial problems? Do I trust God enough to wait for him to deliver me from this? Do I believe strongly enough in that God that I know that someday I will be united with him and all of these pains and trials of this life are just going to be like a a vapor to me? That's the kind of faith that James is talking about. And it's not a light switch. It's not either on or off. It's more like a muscle that can grow or or atrophy. Does that make sense? Uh, If... Somebody says, trust me, I can, you know, I can uh, hold you up or I can give you a piggyback ride without dropping or something like that, and you, you doubt that. After you trust them and they, they come through, you're going to trust them more, right? It grows, doesn't it? And so our faith in God is the same way. When we trust him in areas and we begin to see that he does comfort, he does seem to answer our prayers and at least let us know he's there he does seem to um, deliver us time and again maybe not the way we thought or when we thought but he does seem to do that and when we see that it builds our faith and it makes us people that depend on god all the more okay now i want you to really wrestle with that as faith grows your ability to depend on God grows. The strength of your relationship with God grows. The unity between you and God, he and and, uh, the dominant role, and you and the subordinate role, he leading and loving and you following and submitting, that relationship grows as your dependence grows, as your faith grows. And James just takes this for granted. And we Americans, we have to play catch-up. He thinks everyone's just going to get this because he's speaking to a Jewish audience that understands that life is not the way it's supposed to be. And so they obviously understand that there's a process that we go through in life. There's There's a development of the human soul. There's a calling that we're supposed to respond to whereby we become the people that God wanted us to be or wants us to be. They understand that. How do, they, how do we know they understand that? Go back up to verse 1. To the 12 tribes scattered. How is it supposed to be? It was supposed to be the 12 tribes united. 
Nobody knows it better than this Jewish audience that it doesn't go the way it's supposed to go. And yet, in that, we can learn to depend on God all the more. Does that make sense? He's speaking to a culture that just gets this. And in America, we, we don't. We, we think that every trial is just something to move out of the way so we can get back to the pursuit of this perfect idealistic life that's mine by divine right because I live in America. And I watched too much TV growing up, and so I think it's within reach, that kind of a thing, right? And so we have to go back and go, no, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And our faith has to be locked onto God. If you just turn over like a page or two to the left, right after chapter 11 in Hebrews, which talks about faith, at the beginning of chapter 12, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since we have these things that can help build our faith, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, we've got to get that Jewish mindset. Why? Because our joy is at stake. So here I get to talk about the joy part of it for just a second, okay? When we map onto reality, we can now get back onto the pursuit of joy. And the pursuit of joy doesn't come from idealistic, idyllic circumstances, okay? It doesn't come from perfect circumstances that pamper me. It comes from the progress of my soul as I continue to grow, as my eyes are fixed on Jesus, and I continue to grow and endure. But what is it that drives me on? My joy, my own happiness drives me on and motivates me to endure and to persevere. Listen to what it said about Jesus. It said this, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There's a good kind of happiness out there, a good kind of joy, the kind that, that puzzle pieces with God's plan for your life. And it's okay to get excited about that kind of joy. And so I think what we can do here when James says, consider your trials pure joy because look what's going on. We lock on to the, the, the idea that we're going to grow and the, the whole goal that we're going to grow. And we can begin to say, wow, and if that's my goal, I can look at these trials and say, my faith will develop and, and mature through this. Wow, I can get excited. I mean, I heard this morning that they might be taking the coffee machine out of the Regal. Um, and I almost cried. And it was funny, you know, because you always learn your own messages before you teach them. But it's, that's a trial, right? And can I trust God that he can build a church without the coffee machine? And it stretches my faith to think that's possible. Um, but it gives me an opportunity to trust God, that he knows what he's doing, that he knows the circumstances, and that... Even despite this trial, I can latch on and depend and see this thing work itself out. So the whole idea is, when I look at trials now, money, what does money do when it's hard? 
I've got to trust God that he knows what he's doing and that I'm following him and he's leading me well. With health, I've got to commit my health to God. With relational conflict, well, I want to just blast this person that's talking about me, but I'm supposed to love them. Uh, Okay, well, then I just need to trust God for my own reputation, that they don't slander me too much to where in this town, you know, whatever. Or that it doesn't affect family or kids or, or even marriages. I've got to trust and return love for, for that kind of persecution. And there's a reward. There's a joy and that motivates us. What's best for us, what, what kindles the desire inside of us is in line with what God is calling us to do. It maps on perfectly. Now, James, look at how he parallels. There's like 15 places where he parallels the Gospels. But in Matthew chapter 5, which is the Beatitudes, just listen to a little of what Jesus says in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 11. He says this, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, the word bl- blessed here, it's kind of a weird, we don't use that in, in English. You know, it's makarios is the Greek, it's the word for happy. And maybe it's a little different than the pleasure-loaded happy that we kind of use. But it's this, this idea of it's, it's a blessed state. It's a good state. It's one that you can take joy in when this is happening. Because you're right where you need to be, and you're walking behind God, and you're submitting to him. And so we can take joy in our trials. Now here's the big worldview. Let's just talk a little bit more about this worldview shift. And here's, the, the, I think, the, the nub of it. Um, our world revolves around one of three things. Either ourself, we're, we're incredibly narcissistic, either revolves around ourselves, or an idol that we've created. If I'm worshiping money, if I'm worshiping an object, if I'm worshiping a dream, that can be what my life revolves around. It's called an idol. I'm, I'm elevating it to a place of importance where it shouldn't be. Or our life can revolve around God. And the whole of Scripture from the beginning of Genesis onward is a battle between these different ways of having your life or our collective lives revolve. And God says, be in covenant with me and revolve around me. And we begin to say, we think we can do better for ourselves. We're going to go write our own story, follow our own script, and we begin to make life revolve around us. Now, the picture that came to me was one like uh, in... Potomac Mills in Virginia, my parents used to live in Virginia, it's like the biggest mall in the world, it's all one, one level, and it's just, maybe it used to be the biggest mall, I'm not sure anymore, but it's all one level, and you walk for ages and ages, and so they have all those little booths kind of in the hallway, and they have gimmicks, and you can sit in the massage chairs, and all that other stuff. Well, they have this one place where you, it's this big upside down, or funnel kind of a thing, right? And it's got a little slot, and you drop your coin, and it just starts like this big circular motion, and, and then it's like it starts tilting, which is kind of wild. If you just saw Pirates of the Caribbean, it's like the ships, you know, kind of in that whirlpool. Um, but, it, the, you know, the coin starts going, and pretty soon it gets to the apex, and it starts going really fast, and then falls in. And I was back for a, a vacation, and uh, my wife and I and her family was back. Now, my wife's father 
does not waste money. He's a very mature individual, doesn't waste money. My dad um, thought, well, we're on vacation. Here's Ken's in-laws. I'll show this neat little thing to him. And so he puts a nickel in and says, Jamie, Jamie, come here. Watch this. And so Jamie comes and runs over to my father-in-law, and he's looking at it. And my dad puts this nickel in, and it starts going round and round. And pretty soon it gets to where it's going really fast. And out of nowhere, my father-in-law just slaps it. Slides it out, puts it in his pocket, and goes, "Wow, you know," and, and walks away. And and my dad's just just dumbfounded. What just happened here, you know? And my father-in-law really has no idea what he just did. But I just thought it was hilarious, you know. Um, but we have to revolve around God. Now, here's the idea. There's a there's a plot to the story. If if we're in that scheme of things, God God's story, God's deal, His plot line that he created, we revolve around it. And so our trials make sense in that story, okay? Huck Finn makes sense in Mark Twain's stories, doesn't he? He fits, he revolves, the trials that he goes through make sense within the context of that story. Now, if you take Huck Finn out and you put him in Star Wars, it's, I mean, it's just this category, like, it just doesn't make any sense, and what we do is we're Huck Finn and we're revolving around this story and we begin to kind of get these lustful eyes and we go, wow, that's a pretty cool sci-fi over there. Let me just yank myself out of this story that God's got me in and write myself into this story and revolve around this thing, money or pleasure or whatever, because this looks really good. And our life starts to break down. And we don't realize it because we don't see ourselves. We see what we're revolving around. And we can't understand why everything's falling apart. Because look, it looks so desirable. Why is everything falling apart? And we have no idea that we were made for something else. And we are completely in the wrong place. And when we're in this story, we can know that there's a plan. And so God works all things for good um, to those he called, Romans 8.28, right? God works all things for good. Why does everybody struggle with Romans 8.28? Because we've already defined what good is. When God took and carted out all these people from the land and scattered them, if, if they were looking for their own little story of what the good was, they're not going to find it, are they? But we look back and we're like, wow, that's really funny. It was like seed. God took those people that knew him and he scattered them almost like seed. And then when when Jesus comes and, and Paul goes out, where does he go? He goes from place to place to place where people already know God. They're already waiting for Jesus, or for the Messiah. And, and it's like God already had all the seed everywhere. God knew what he was doing. He worked it for good in the context of his story. And the reason we struggle with Romans 8.28 is because we don't see the story that we're revolving around. We only look at our own life. And so that's the testing of faith. It's things come into my life and it tests me such that I have to say, oh, that's right. It's about this story, not about that one over there. And I'm learning more and more to just trust God and depend on him and walk with him. And so I'm just going to wait. And so you got this rich tradition in the Old Testament of waiting on the Lord. And we begin to understand a little bit of what that means. That we walk by faith. So look here to this next verse. Now if any of you lacks wisdom, 
he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. Asking God for wisdom is, is not about, God, make me a philosopher with a big white beard so that I can sit in a corner and, and stroke my beard and look really wise. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is God has called you to do something incredibly difficult, to play a part in his story and to revolve around him, and you're going to come into trials and temptations and struggles and miseries that are paradoxes. They're not the way it's supposed to be, and you're going to have to trust God and to hang on to your faith and not lose your faith, and you're going to have to navigate life in the middle of those difficult times. And so if you need wisdom, if you need the ability to, to know how to make decisions, to know where your values should be, to know where your priorities to, should be, to know how to even see all this, to know your own heart in the midst of it and, and where you're beginning to doubt so that you can kind of weed that out. If you need the wisdom to navigate this journey, ask God. He's called you to this. And so if you need what, what the equipping side of it is so that you've got the tools, then ask God. The Greek word there for lack, if you lack wisdom, it's actually funky because it, it implies more of need. It, it, it literally implies need. And so if any of you needs wisdom, then ask God. I think we've run out of things to pray. Prayer is a hard thing for Christians because we, we run out of things to pray for. You know, why? Well, I prayed last week for that vacation to the Bahamas. You know, I mean, if God's going to give it, he's going to get But I don't know how to pray about it again. And so we kind of like pray, but we pray for list items, and we, can, we kind of run out of things to pray for because, well, I've already prayed for that. Well, I guess I could pray for it again. And one of the big things we should be on our knees about every day or five minutes after we find out about a big trial that's looming in our life, a big struggle, and we go find a quiet place, the things that drive us to our knees is that we want wisdom, that we need wisdom, that we're desperate for the ability to navigate life and to do it in such a way that our joy that's going to be found in God is not compromised. And so that God's glory that he gets from us living rightly isn't compromised. And man, that's a heavy deal. And so if you want wisdom, ask God. If you want wisdom, ask God. Just jump down to verse 12 here. Let's see James kind of reiterate again what he's trying to get across. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There's a book that I would like uh, all of Antioch, those of you that actually can read, I mean not can read, but would read, um, that I'd like for all of you to go through uh, this summer together, that, that we would just all do it kind of as a church through this James series and into the summer. And it's called Desiring God by John Piper. And we've got a bunch of copies on the book table, and uh, we've got it on our webpage that you can you know, order it off Amazon if you want. But Piper does something that I think helps with this whole worldview issue we've got. He takes the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says, uh, ask the question, what is the chief end of man? What's our purpose? What is our purpose? I mean, have you ever asked that? Why am I here? And it answers that question by saying, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
And Piper takes and he tweaks that. And you're allowed to do that because it's not scripture. It's just a creed um, from the time of the Reformation. And, and he takes and he changes it to this. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And what he did was he just, he all of a sudden said, these things are two sides of the same coin. It's not this and that. It's if we really realize where our own happiness is going to come from, that it's going to come from that relationship with God. Okay, and if we really understand from God's side of it that what do you want more than anything else from people you care about? You want to be appreciated. You know, nothing's going to cut you deeper than if they say something that belittles you because you're no longer valued in, in their life, that kind of thing. So there's nothing more than being appreciated or desired. And so God gets glory by us desiring him. And we get joy because that's the only source of joy. It's the only thing where everything, the corrective lenses are on and we see life uh, rightly. And so Piper even says in here, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And it's a whole book on talking about finding our happiness in God. And I'd like for us to read that. The title of it is Desiring God. And I think that phrase right there, we could just slap it on everything. That it's about our desire for God. We, we need to be people who are desiring God. And if we do, trials that will grow our faith become a joy. They become an opportunity. They become something that we no longer digest the same way we used to. And so, lastly, I'll just wrap it up here. I had a seminary professor who, who liked to just barrel all of life into this, and he said, life is relentlessly difficult. And so he just said, from start to finish, uh, we live in a fallen world where we toil, and life is relentlessly difficult. And so, sooner or later, we're going to run smack into that. And the story of man, the history of man has been this, that either people strive to try and create a reality for themselves, uh, to rise above the difficult side of life, to take it into our own hands. Either they strive or they bow a knee and submit to God. That those are the two options that men have always, humanity has always kind of taken, the left or the right. We either strive to solve the riddle ourselves or we bow the knee and we submit to God. And so I just want to read you out of Hebrews. And it's Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 7. And, and listen to how Jesus did this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus went through this exact same journey that we're on. Where the progress of the soul is a big thing. It's not just about our soul sitting there and being pampered with all its wants and needs, and it'll never grow. It just gets spoiled. And Jesus went through it himself. And so it's kind of amazing. We look for the secret to life or meaning or purpose or happiness or joy or pleasure everywhere you turn, 
we're looking for it. And we think it's hidden. You know, we think it's buried, that it's a, a, a mysterious riddle somewhere that Dr. Phil can unlock for us, you know. But it's like we've got to find the thing that will take us on the treasure hunt to find this, this holy grail, the meaning of life. And then I think here's the answer, that even though our God allows trials, that even though our God scatters the, the diaspora, that we can rest in his will, that we can trust his divine plan, and that we can take joy in the progress of our souls as our faith gets tested and we learn to depend more and more on him through the day-to-day trials in our life. And so I think when we get there, it's great, I think, what Lauren said about a modern-day psalm. I think when we really get the worldview right, we really then begin to get the Psalms. And so instead of closing in prayer, I just want to close by reading Psalm 16, and then the worship team is going to come up. Here's Psalm 16, and just listen to the soul that gets it. David says this, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. And as for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. And I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. And I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. and My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And Father, God, we would just pray now that we would see you as our source of delight and pleasure and joy and happiness, that we would have hearts that desire you, that we would want to be in the story that you've written us into more than any other thing, that we wouldn't trust the alluring nature of sin that would promise us something that it can never deliver. So Father, just help us to rest secure. In Christ's name, amen.